Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. My name is Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Today, we've got a guest. This is fun. I guess I'm going to apologize to start the podcast. We don't often cover our friends in the Atlantic Canada. So this is good because this is getting us different geography, diversification. We've done a bunch this year on BC, prairies, of course, regularly kind of touch on Ontario. But now we're going to talk about what's going on in Atlantic Canada. To do that, our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Ron Lovett, who is the founder and chief community officer of BIDA. Ron, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks. And shame on you both for not covering Atlantic, but good on you for doing it. We were waiting for you, Ron. We were waiting for the right guy <laughs> before we really dove in. So thanks for coming and doing this for us. Yeah, so, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I should mention, sorry, before we move on, Ron's also a fellow podcaster. Ron, please plug your podcast when it's appropriate. And also an author. You say you've written a couple of books. We will probably get to that. I don't think they're exclusively real estate specific, but they kind of cover some of the things that you are passionate about that I suspect will permeate through this conversation as we kind of delve into it. So as we make our way there, why don't we just start with Ron? We really like to get a sense of who the individual is that we're talking to and of course, how they ended up in the world of commercial real estate. So why don't you guys tell us just a little bit about yourself and why Vita? Why, why, why do what you do today? Yeah, thanks. So I guess as you rewind, rewind. So born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's not many of us left, but I am born and raised here. Grew up in a single family. My father and mother separated when I was probably three months old. My father's from Florida. So when I was born, my name was Ronald Francis Poe III. My father was Ron Poe II, my grandfather. And so anyways, I didn't meet Ron Poe II until I was 21 years old. So raised by my mother who remarried when I was at the age of eight years old to a gentleman by the name of Barry Lovett. And you know, I probably common East Coast story. I was just more of a troublesome kid that got into some rough circles and did some things maybe I shouldn't have been doing as a kid, but it was always kind of figuring out my way, raised by a lot of my environment. My mom worked a lot growing up, but I was always very entrepreneurial, was buying hats in the US and selling them in Canada. I had paper roots. I was cutting hair for $5 a haircut in our attic. I was just always, as I reflect back, very scrappy and always trying to get ahead in some way and you know, really struggled through school. By the age of 33, did a proper testing to figure out that I was dyslexic. And at 29, maybe 32, something like that, was also diagnosed with ADHD. So these came very late in life and earlier in life, did horrible in school. I just, you know, failed two courses, grade eight, two in grade nine, basically asked to leave my school in grade eight, failed two in grade 10, two in grade 11, just barely got out of high school in grade 12, did attend university. I have a half a credit from the Mount St. Vincent. It's a wonderful school. Eventually, if your kids want to attend. And I'm selling my half credit online. It's for sale. But I traveled. I put a backpack on and I became a traveler, not a tourist. Had done some pretty incredible trips and was weighing out the value to me of what I was learning with a backpack on or that my shorts didn't at the mountain. Couldn't compare the two. I was really learning about the world. And that's, I think, helped me today. You know, I've been over 56 countries and love to travel. And so did that. I got a sales job with ClearNet, which was acquired by TELUS way back. And then my last trip was to Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia. So I spent two months in Colombia, like backpacking, like Park Tirona, Santa Marta, Bogota, and learn how to speak Spanish down there. When I came back, I started a security company. I was working at nightclubs in Halifax as a hired gun 
Bars would hire me to keep basically my friends out and some unwanted apples. <laughs> I would just show up with a metal detector and do my thing. And so when I went to Columbia, there was a few bars that called and said, hey, like we have problems again. Can you come back and clean these places up? And I was training Brazilian jiu-jitsu at the time under the Gracie. There was local schools here, Gracie jiu-jitsu, but I was going to New York to actually train at Henzo Gracie School, fight his students to get my belts. And at the time, I thought I would be a bodyguard. I thought, you know, I'm scrappy and, you know, scrapping a lot and doing the nightclub thing. And, but you don't know what you don't know. And there was enough work in Atlanta, Canada to be a full-time bodyguard, you know? And so I decided when I came back, I was reading a book called One Hell of a Ride, I think, or Stop the Ride, It's Time to Get Off. I can't remember the title, but a gentleman by the name of David Courtney, who was kind of a bit of a gangster from England, who used to rent his friends out to nightclub security companies in England. And I thought, you know, I could just be the nightclub security company. I don't have to rent my friends out to a place. I could just do that. So when I came back, to Halifax, when the phone was ringing, I started a company called Source Security and we provided security for nightclubs. And so that's where I really started my entrepreneurial career. And then I'll blast through that very quickly, but I had that company for 15 years, highs and lows, ups and downs. In 2014, I lost almost a million dollars. I was a sole shareholder, was close to bankruptcy. And then I got to what I'll call an aha question, which was as I was up having a big glass of wine over Christmas break and looking at a whiteboard, I thought, you know, what if I had to restart this industry? Because I was going to close my doors. I really just created a job for myself. And yeah, that question, what if I had to restart the industry from scratch was very powerful. I had asked questions like, what if I bought my company today? What would I do differently? What customers would I keep? What systems or processes would I change? But what if I started the industry was different? That led me to really two headlines. One was, could I create an atmosphere, a company where there wasn't the traditional hierarchy of command and control and like the military style or charts? Could I remove all that mid-level management and push all the autonomy down to the front line? So a frontline leader, so a security supervisor at the Eaton Center, you know, something like that. That was my theory, as well as could I create culture? Could I create company culture in an industry that really lacked culture? It was command and control. That was the culture. I read Nuts by Southwest Airlines, Herb Keller's stories. I thought, what if I could do that? You know, it's more challenging. People don't come to our office. They go to our clients' locations. It's 24-7. They work under their management. I became obsessive about those two things, turned the company around, and then sold for a 24 times multiple to Allied Universal in 2017, which was a great exit. You know, in the private security world, which was a service-based company that everyone said, hey, you'll never get more than five or six times. So I'd exited. During that time, I was involved with real estate, duplexes, triplexes, bought about 60,000 square feet of commercial. I had restaurants. I opened the first Italian BYOB in Halifax, Asian takeout. I had a whole bunch of unsuccessful companies. I was very unfocused. But security was always my main business. And I was always going back to or trying to bail out because I was unfocused. When I sold the company, I had bought a 12-unit building with a Canadian comedian by the name of Sean Majumder. I don't know if you guys know that name. He's a very yep, funny guy. Yeah, definitely. Sean's a good friend of mine, emceed my wedding. We've just been friends for a long time. And so he provided some capital to buy a 12-unit. And at the time, I was really looking at that industry, and I'm going to call that the workforce housing, the old stick walk-ups, wood-framed buildings built in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, late 60s even, that you know were four-story walk-ups. A lot of 12 units, 20 units, 30 units. And this was a 12, and it was very challenging at the time. So I had bought that building with Sean, and I was going in to clean that building up because it was very challenging. I mean, you guys probably wouldn't have walked through that building. 
unless you were escorted by me, who was also Jay-Z's bodyguard, FYI, okay? And so at the time, I was going in with the rough and tough, Ronnie Lovett's going to go clean this place up and people better play by the rules or out the front door they go. And then I just kind of slowed down. I thought, what if I take the same play out of the playbook of the security business? What if we had to restart this industry from scratch? That was interesting because that brought me to really four things of what is the industry, that workforce housing, that affordable section of the market, what's it missing? And it was safety, security, cleanliness, and opportunity. And I can talk about those later. And then I also thought, look, there's no brand. I hadn't seen anyone build a brand. And so I thought there's an opportunity to stay focused where I was unfocused in my previous chapter, be incredibly focused and build a brand and build an incredible business. And so that's kind of how we got started. And that's my story and what got me here today. And then I'm currently on personally too, I've got three children, a five-year-old, a three-year-old and an 11-month-old Margot Ireland is our latest addition. So I've been on pat leave for the last four months. I've got a month to go. So it's been fabulous just kind of hanging at home with the baby. As you were telling your story and you're about halfway through, I was thinking in my head, how the hell is this going to get back to real estate? That sounds like trajectory for so many different outcomes. I don't know that I would have put real estate in the top 10, but obviously it has worked out. Buying a 12-plex with a famous comedian. That's how it grounded itself back into real estate, (laughs) miraculously. Yeah, that was a start. And you know, from there, it went to 100 units. And I don't know if you guys know a gentleman by the name of John Risley, who recently brought this company, the space company, public with Jim Basile, and he sold Clearwater for a billion. He's done two or $3 billion deals, and he's been a great friend and mentor. And from the 12, there was an opportunity to buy like a condemned, half the portfolio's condemned, it was what, 100 units. And this is interesting because I was looking at that too. I'd sold my security company, was looking for what's next. I felt like the handcuffs were off. The security industry is a very challenging industry. Great place. That was my university, really. I cut my teeth at business. But at the time I was looking at this deal, it was about a $5 million transaction. This is 2018. It was about 53,000 a unit. It was a big deal for me. It was a $5.3 million deal. I was nervous to do it. And I called John. I said, John, you know, everybody told me when you sell your company, don't do anything for two years. Don't do anything. It doesn't matter what opportunity is in front of you. And I said, so John, I've got this opportunity and I don't know, it's only been not even a year. And John said to me, well, I don't really agree with what other people have told you. And I think the best time to do a deal is when you don't need to do a deal. And that really was great advice to get me to buy that portfolio. And that really got things started. Let's follow along. So you've got your brand at this point and establishing the marketplace, you're accumulating units. What do you do to take it to the next level? How do you grow? How do you really imprint on the, you know, the renting populace? That this is you know, a Vita product. I guess a few things. Let me rewind a little bit if it's okay with why that section too, because I don't know if you guys read the book called Blue Ocean Strategy. Have you guys know that book? I've done the Coles Nose version of it. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I mean, it talks about the Red Sea of business or the Blue Ocean where you don't have much competition. Back with Sean, when I bought that building and it was getting into the 100 units, I was looking at that market, the segment of the market, two things came together. One was the players that I saw for the most part, by the way, and I'm generalized, but for the most part, there was three operators in that space. I would argue still are today. You had slumlords, which are in that space and continue to be in the space which no problem, easy to compete with them. Entrepreneurs or small families or large families that held real estate and they either third-party the management or they had it in-house and they were good people. They kept their word, but there was no innovation or a lack of innovation. And it wasn't data-driven. It was really just this family wealth creation engine. So that was a second. And the third was institutional operators and owners that either most third-party the management. And really what I could see was 
the guidance was, look, charge as much as you can and keep costs as low as you can. They managed through the PL. So I thought, what a great opportunity to come in. And at the same time, I had taken a course. It was like an entrepreneur master program at MIT through entrepreneurs organization with I'm involved with. And there's a speaker. I had this aha moment because the speaker said, if you want to build a unicorn, quote unquote, you know, an Uber or something like that, then you take an industry and you look at where you think you can win, differentiate yourself, and you slice off 10% of an entire industry where you think you'll win. You look at that 10% and you own 70% of the 10. And so that really was an aha moment for me because my security world, I would do hospitals in Ontario, save on foods in Victoria. I'm on tour with Jay-Z or ACDC. Or if Starbucks had a window that was broken, we would do it. These were very different things. And so I was looking for extreme focus, which is hard with ADHD. I thought, wow, the large institutions that I had seen had different segments of the customer segment. So they started in C and then C plus and then B minus and then B plus and A and then developing. And those are very different customers. And I wanted to figure out how to get sticky with that, what I call the missing middle. I thought that was the opportunity, not just to operate, but be our purpose of revolutionizing affordable communities. That's our company purpose. And so I wanted to really ramp it up and create something different that I hadn't seen in Canada or the US or globally with the research I had done. And this is very long-winded, but I'm getting to the capital source, which I think is interesting because our purpose revolutionized affordable communities. But we had this BHAG of 10,000 units by 2027, the big, hairy, audacious goal, right? And interesting enough, this is a year and a half ago because we've really scaled. We now have 2,100 units today across Canada and Winnipeg and Atlantic. But the interesting thing about that BHAG of 10,000 units, which I didn't know, but upon reflection, I think is interesting is we were looking for capital. I had built up with my own capital, I got to about 650 units of my own. And then it was time. You know, People said, oh, you just got to keep refinancing and refinancing. But if I was going to get to 10,000, I'd be 150 years old by the time I continue to refinance and gain that many units. So we knew we needed outside partners. And so what we were doing, we were meeting with family offices where we started and investors. And I would do this. Let's just say you guys were a family office. So I've got Adam and Aaron here. And I'd say, look, guys, before we get started, hi, how are you? Where are you from? Let's get through that stuff. But I want to do a clearing round. The clearing round is I would say, look, let's pretend that you like me and trust me. And let's pretend you like the business thesis of Vita and what we stand for and what we're doing. And third, let's pretend that you really like the asset that we put in front of you. What is your appetite to write a check? And they would say, well, what do you mean? And I'd say, well, what is your appetite? Is it half a million? Is it a million? Is it five before you have to pause until we recycle that capital? What's the number? A lot of families and investors would say half a million, one million. We'd get to as high as 5 million in the early days. And this is me and Eric McPherson, our, our chief investment officer. And I would literally stop the conversation and say, look, Aaron, Adam, it's really great to meet you guys, but we need to get to 10,000. And so this isn't going to work for us. And we'd debate back, what are you doing? You know, These guys are writing a check for a million bucks. And I'd say, but we have to do this whole song and dance over again. Like, Let's wait. Let's spend more time to find the right partnership groups that can grow us to 10,000 that are very sophisticated, that we're going to learn from because we have more questions and answers and that are well-capitalized. And so we aligned ourselves with those types of partners out of the gates. This is awesome, Ron. I apologize for the stuttering. I'm going to take a deep breath because there's a lot to unpack here because I've got so many different (laughs) things I want to go. It's such an interesting story, your background, which I almost feel like we could just 
do part one, part two, part three. I just want to talk about the years you spent as a bodyguard and as <laughs> Jay-Z's name. I can't believe I'm just going to ignore the fact that you name drop Jay-Z and move on to other questions. But this is the commercial real estate podcast. I want to stay focused. <laughs> so one, make sure everybody's holding on to the rope. You're exclusively focused on apartments, correct? Correct. 100%. And you are nationwide, correct? Yeah. So we have about 240 units in Winnipeg and the remaining of the portfolio, we have about 200 plus in New Brunswick and everything else is in Halifax, HRM. And then we own about 500 units in Truro, just outside of Halifax. So the thesis, the revolutionizing affordable communities, I think you said 20,000, but the BHAG is predominantly focused on the Atlantic Canada market. And so when you were looking, when you're surveying the market and saying you had slumlords, which unfortunately do participate, and you had the institutions and the families, that there was an opportunity to really build a brand, the Vita brand, to revolutionize affordable communities. That was with the general guidance or the general purpose of Atlantic Canada. No, that's a great question that I think we continue to debate a little bit, Aaron, which is we started here because there was an opportunity. So 650 units. And really the transformational deal for us was the TELUS portfolio. It was 1,050 units last July that we closed. It was an $87.5 million deal. That was transformational. We didn't know where those things were going to come from. I actually didn't think that we were going to acquire as many units as we did here in Atlantic. At 10,000, my original thesis was we'll probably get to two in Canada and eight in the US. That's already proven to be wrong. So we aren't in the US. We almost had a deal in Cleveland, Ohio. One of our strategies is to finalize, as I'm on paternity leave, is what cities do we want to start in in the United States? We started with a gunshot spray. We were looking at deals down there. We almost, as I mentioned, almost did a deal in Cleveland. I was speaking at a conference, went to look at 11 properties and you know how that goes. And he was walked away from that deal. It wasn't in our strike zone, but I thought it was going to be 80, 20. I, I don't know what that'll be at 10,000 years, but we looked at North America as the opportunity and we'll continue to scale that in Canada as long as we can. And to be frank with how things have just changed recently with cap rates as compressed as they were, we don't have people that compete for our customer, but we have people that compete for the assets. And so we know that Vita as a model, it's going to be really tough. Not only is there not you know, very much product left in Toronto or Vancouver, but we can't compete with developers or value adders that got to the studs. That's not what we do. And so we looked at the markets where we can compete. We thought we were going to run out of powder here, like product. We just thought, wow, with how the market's going, we were nervous that we were going to really have to hit the pause button. We think that now that cap rates are starting to rise a little bit, interest rates are moving up again, that there's going to be more opportunity that we'll continue to move and probably continue to acquire. We are seeing a lot starting to come back on the market in Canada. I think that's a good news story for us. We will talk about the implications of the current market, but I think sure. there's some interesting conversations. To be fair, Adam and I feel like we've beaten that dead horse over and yeah. over and over the last podcast. So let's just pretend for today that we're sitting in with rosy colored glasses here so that we can move this forward. I want to define the purpose of the revolutionizing affordable communities and what that means. I mean, Adam and I, over the years, have had lots of discussions from institutions to private investors. I right. don't think that any slumlords up, but I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask. Not openly, not openly slumlords, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> they all, to a certain degree, will talk about the ultimate purpose of housing Canadians and building communities and the ownership we have to help Canadians, right? And that affordability concept, of course, is becoming more and more acute. But what is it that Vita does that distinguishes themselves? 
we've had Mark Kenny on, we've had, I'm not even going to go through it, but we have lots and lots and lots of leaders of great institutions that own 30, 40, 50,000 units and say that they've got a great brand, they've got a great program and that people will go out of their way to rent a unit in their buildings. So what is it that Vita does? How would you describe it to me? If not distinguishing yourself, but just defines you as your organization and why a tenant would want to rent in your unit, in your building. Absolutely. And look, I get excited about this conversation because I hear the same thing. A lot of people call it a platform. And then I'm like, well, show me the meat, show me the money, what's in the platform. Let me walk you through a little bit. There's a few things that I believe really separate us. So let me go through the pillars and I'll unpack these. I think it'll be helpful. But before I get started, I'm going to take everything and put it into like a mission or vision, which is Vita provides affordable, safe, clean places where people are proud to live in and that help them get ahead in life. And then let me walk you through how we do that. So the pillars, so security, let's start there, for instance. So lack of security in this asset class, there is. And what I mean by that, the easy story is, if someone was evicted for violence or whatever the challenge was in that building, and this was my experience, the landlord, the owner did not change the front door locks and that person still had the front door key. And so I wanted to upgrade the security to fob entry systems. We know who's in the building, who's not in the building. Fob entry for a 12-unit stick walk-up. I had not seen that before. Cameras and lighting. Throughout my security background was helpful. I was physical security, but it was easy to figure that stuff out. And it wasn't overly expensive. That raised confidence. All of a sudden, Aaron, you had people that were a little more confident, you know, because families, when we acquired these assets in some buildings, they put their heads down, they go right to their door and get in there and don't come out until they have to leave. We wanted to rebuild confidence. Cleanliness is our other pillar. So making sure that these buildings inside and outside were clean, usually using tenants and customers to do that, right? Employing, empowering them to do it. And then you have community. Community was actually the most difficult one because this industry, as I had seen it, I have seen landlords turn a closet into a bedroom. We went the other way. I actually would take a one bedroom, convert it to a bachelor and use that one bedroom as a gym. Because a 12 unit, 20 unit, 30 unit, there's no amenities. There was zero amenities. There was storage garbage in the basement. Boom, we'd shell that and turn into a seating area, gym. There was extra space on the third floor. That becomes a common area library for book exchange. We can put a planter box on the outside where people can plant now. And so How do we get very creative about maximizing and using all the space that is underutilized or not used? And you have to be very creative. It's been hard for us to build a program around that because buildings are all different shapes and sizes. So we really have to go in and be like, ah, let's be strategic about this area here. So that was the start of community. We build community partners. And yes, this is not a new idea. There's REITs that have programs that tap into deals for their customers. But for our customer base, they don't go anywhere without their Vita Perks card because they really tap into, because of our customer base and their income levels in most cases, our perks and rewards are incredibly critical to them. If there's a 10% off at a local eatery, we have a deal with Coho. If they're going to get a discount ordering a Visa card, like these are things to help them get ahead. They really love the perks. And we have lots of community partners who provide discounts. So if you want healthcare, we have a deal through Hub Insurance. You can get your personal healthcare through Hub. I mean, we really are trying to provide strategic services for our customers that are outside of real estate. It comes back to what I always challenge our group on and say, look, fine, we're in real estate. We provide a affordable place and a roof over someone's head. But if we just move one step over and we say, 
but that's a customer. What else can we do for the customer? That's the business we're in. You keep a roof over the head of your tenant, but a customer you actually provide additional services for. I mean, just the lingo changes the perception of what your purpose is. Correct. And the last one was opportunity. Now, I have to backtrack a little bit here because in the security world, when I removed the mid-level management, everyone's phone started to blow up, right? It was like, oh my God, Ron removed 14 mid-level managers. Now everybody's phone that was left was blowing up. So what we did is we started to talk to management and we'd say, look, Adam, Aaron, what are the things that give you energy and drain your energy from a work perspective? And let's take the things that drain your energy, let's insource that to our security guards. And so if you were the accountant, Aaron, and you were like, look, I don't really like reconciling the books, we would have an underutilized individual from India that's working in Burnaby writing reports that was a CFO that couldn't get a job as a CFO here. And we would hire them on a project basis to reconcile the accounts. These are things that I was doing in the private security world where people thought I was insane. They just said, I can't believe you're doing that. You're taking away from your managers or the group that are left to provide opportunity for our frontliners, but it allowed us to tap into what I call untapped potential. And so when I sold the business, we had seven management, we had 3,500 full and part-time employees and Allied Universal couldn't even understand how we operated the company. It's because we had 52 other individuals that were doing some type of work for Vita. It's no different than if you're going to paint your garage this weekend, you don't want to do it. You go online, you say, anybody know a painter in the neighborhood and you have three names, you call someone, they do it. I just followed that kind of gig economy for the security world. And I wrote a book called Outrageous Empowerment in 2018 about that. What my thesis was, was for the opportunity pillar was, why don't we do the same thing with our customer? What a great way to get them to buy into Vita. And so we didn't reinvent the wheel. There's landlords that have someone to mow the lawn. Well, we just said, how do we extend that? How do we put that on steroids and 10X that? So it's not just mowing the lawn. What other small repair and maintenance can we have customers do? And not just at the asset level, but at Vita level, just like I did in the security world. We have customers that write newsletters. We have customers that take photos. We have customers that do admin work, data entry. Like you think of the power of having your customer involved in your business. Not only does it empower them and they become a fan of your business, but they also will give you pretty vulnerable and objective feedback on your business because you really build a relationship with them. So, you know, before we scaled to north of 2000 units, we had 22% of our customers doing some type of work at Vita. And that was an incredible number for us. We we're really proud of that. So we continue to, you know, our application process is very unique. One of the things we say are, what are your soft skills and hard skills? And would you be open to us leaning into you for these types of things? That's part of helping people get ahead is giving them what I'll call first right of refusal on small projects, not just at the asset level, but at the company level as well. You mentioned scaling. And of course, you know, your, your podcast focuses on that. Have you encountered any difficulties in trying to scale that sense of community up? I mean, you're at 2,000 units already. So that's, of course, the, the sizable portfolio. But have you found any stumbling blocks along the way as you try and scale, but maintain this unique culture community within your buildings? I would say the answer is a ton of stuff. We really have more questions than answers sometimes daily. I think a few things that come to mind, I think of the first big challenge and then where we are today. I'll maybe talk about both of them. So one is I was buying very challenging assets to start with. I had maybe missed and taken for granted that I could get customers to be confident to come back to this asset that they deemed to be unsafe before. What I missed was I don't control the environment outside the building. 
And so, you know, one of our partners who's very sophisticated, he challenged me way back and he said, you know, Ron, I get that you bought this challenging building in Winnipeg or Halifax, but how do you scale challenges? Like, how are you planning? You seem like a system process and keep things simple guy, but how are you going to systemize those types of challenges? And he was right. I was a little defensive. That was my initial gut reaction because we were just saving the neighborhood, but he was right. And his second question was, how do you scale? Where do you find a thousand of those units of that magnitude of challenges? So we went up market a little bit. That was a Telus portfolio. That wasn't condemned. Those assets were up market and had more of workforce housing, less folks that might've been on assistance. That was one. The one I'd say today that we're working through right now, we need to continue to figure out is because we do like to systemize things. One of our challenges is if you come in through what I'm going to call the Vita ecosystem, if, if you come in through our application process, which is very different, it's the same strategy I used years ago to hire security guards. And what I mean by that is we use a talent tracker versus, you know, we don't do credit checks and background checks. That's what the industry does. What we do is we ask questions. It's about a 15-minute application. The first question says, look, Adam, tell us your story. Where do you come from and where are you going in life? That'll provide us about a 19% drop-off right away. People are like, none of your business. I'm not interested in answering this. Or this is really interesting. This is very different from what I've seen before. Someone's interested in me as a human and my story. I'm going to lean into this. And so the questions continue to screen for things like, what are the importance of community, opportunity, cleanliness, security? Are they important to you or not? And so we have data-driven scores that allow someone to go through this and come out the other side and say, wow, if you didn't score 75%, you probably don't make it through the application. So it's very data-driven. And so, but our challenge is, obviously, we acquire a lot of customers. So we're looking for alignment for a customer that applies. But our challenge today is when we acquire a thousand customers, how do we figure out without making people go through an application, which we wouldn't do, how do we figure out if they're aligned with Vita? We have a system to figure out who should maybe leave. Maybe there's someone who just doesn't align. They're a racist in the community and they drive everybody crazy or there's challenges from that perspective. But we need to figure out there are certainly customers that are really aligned with Vita and our purpose. How do we continue to figure out who they are so we can tap into them day one? And that's a challenge today that we haven't solved. You know, you keep saying we, you mentioned your CIO more on the capital sourcing side, and we'll get to that because with scale comes the need for capital. And we'll talk about that, those two connected items. But I just want to final finish off on just rounding out Vita. With that scale, Adam kind of asked the question about just the challenges of scale. And you've talked about bringing on your customers and the vetting process of new customers. Of course, if you're acquiring assets, you're taking on new customers through acquisition, but you've got to have boots on the ground to do that work for you to figure out who the bad people are, who the bad customers are. That's not easy because you can't just bring somebody on from the industry and say, everything you thought you knew about the industry, we don't do any of that. You got to do it this way. So maybe just talk about that process of growing a team. How big is your team, by the way, right now? Yeah. So we're 25, 23, 25, something like that. On paternity leave, I've lost count, unfortunately. <laughs> that's okay. Actually disconnecting because that's tough to do. Sorry, when I say that, that's full-time. And then we would have building ambassadors. That's our version, which is part of the answer here. We have building ambassadors versus resident managers or superintendents. And so that's a very different model. That's someone who lives in a 12, 20, 30-unit building, works full-time, and does this very part-time. And that is the person that's boots on the ground. Because When I looked at this industry too, I saw the resident manager and the superintendent. For the most part, 
I looked at those roles as having expiry dates, like my old mid-level operations manager roles, because the phone rings 24-7. You don't have a life. You don't have a family. You know, It's very challenging to have any type of balance. In my business, those people had a 24-hour window or life expectancy for their role. And I wanted to follow what we did in the security world, which was instead of a resident manager managing 10 20-unit buildings for 200 units, let's have 10 people manage 20 each. Let's break it off and compensate everybody that would just do a little bit of the work. And so they live in the communities. They have to look at someone in the eye. They manage the contractor, all those things, which have been very helpful to the model. Look, this building ambassador model, not only is it in the spirit of helping people get ahead because all these people work. And so it helps them get ahead in life. They take on a little bit of the community responsibility of managing suppliers, turning units, having community events for their 20 or 30 unit building, getting to know the customers, tapping into the customers' skill sets for repair and maintenance, those types of things. So it works quite well. And then, you know, I always say we have an army of people that are building communities. And I always give this example. This is interesting. So we had a building ambassador in one of our buildings in Halifax. We had a bunch of customers that were complaining about kids, this is during the pandemic, running up and down the halls, right? Wood frame building, driving everybody crazy. And so what the building ambassador did is they converted the adult seating area in the basement where we had turned back to that story of turning a one bedroom to a bachelor. We'd use the room. They had people donate children's toys and made it a complete toy room for the kids. So you think about that. That building ambassador, who was actually an early childcare worker, Kyla, she's fantastic. Hope she's listening. So she went out of her way without permission because we have this decision-making process, right? We say, look, if you're going to do something that you haven't been trained to do, that isn't part of your job description, but it's something you have a new challenge, you ask yourself three questions. Is what you want to do as a solution, what you're about to do, is it the right thing for the customer? Yes or no? Is it the right thing for our business and our purpose based on revolutionizing affordable communities? And are you willing to be accountable if it's yes, yes, yes? Don't ask anybody, just move and we will support you. So in this case, Kyla runs through decision-making process. I don't even know she spent any money actually, but she certainly had people donate toys, made this playroom and boom, you've got kids now totally enjoying the space, playing families, not hearing them run up and down the halls. Like what a win-win that at the office and how we would never figure out how to solve that problem. And those stories I love. And that really talks about the model and the outcome because The question is, how does that impact the customer? Why would the customer care? And our customers, and I get to now, you know, interview customers that talk about their experience with Vita and their experience with their building ambassador and how they care so much about them. It's unbelievable. We really look for alignment on the hiring process to make sure people are aligned with the vision, et cetera. That is beautiful because the alternative is you reprimand the parents of those children and try and force or encourage them to keep the kids out of the hallways and then they're not happy. Kids aren't happy. A hundred percent. Out of the front door, playing. Please keep your kids quiet in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You give a notice. Please do not disturb everyone's peace and quiet, or we'd have to evict you, or whatever the dumb notice is. Right? I mean, this is where the opportunities are in the segment and in the industry. I think I'm keying into something here. The singer Ricky Martin, through his song "Living La Vida Loca," lets me know that vida means life, and that's not an accident. I'm sure this is really what you're trying to do. Is you're not just renting somebody a four walls and a roof to live in. It's really trying to accommodate their entire life. Absolutely. And the word Vita is a special word. And if you look at the logo, the idea was, how do we create something that is very welcoming? It doesn't look like ABC Real Estate Co. 
I would say that if you look at Vita, it looks like you're going to a spa. It is supposed to be welcoming. We just recently changed our coloring to be more ESG, I'll call it friendly, from an aqua blue to a green. And we also changed from Vita Living to Vita. And I was challenged by our third-party marketer who said, you know, Ron, Apple is Apple for a reason. Same with Google. And if you want to build a brand, drop living. This is Vita. And it took me a while to get there. And then I was like, you know, he's right. Let's just be Vita. And so that's where we are today. That's a great lead into the next question. We kind of touched on it early and you were discussing or describing your experience of sitting in front of potential investors, potential partners, the idea that you're trying to raise capital and looking for partners that really can help you grow to scale. And I think you said 20,000 units by 2027. 10,000, uh, but it'll probably 10, be 30, oh. I think, but yes. Let's just say a lot of units, more than today in the near future, which is tremendous growth. Again, we're going to ignore the interest rate sure. cap environment we're sitting in today. We'll, we'll finish off the conversation with that. But it clearly means you've got to do some aggressive capital raising. And you've described the story now. Like I'm assuming effectively what you've just talked to us about for the last 30 minutes is more or less how you go into these meetings. I think the challenge at times, and we hear this from other people in the industry that we've talked about, you are a big part of the culture and the story, right, Ron? I mean, just unfortunately, we're not in person. I can't wait to meet you in person and hopefully have another interview some point in the future in person. But I can feel everybody, I'm sure that's listening, can feel the sort of the larger than life energy that you've got. And so that's important to the business, to Vita's success, to the growth. Capital isn't necessarily passive, particularly in our space. So how do you manage that? One, how do you make sure people buy into the story? How do you deploy the capital? We can maybe go to there, but how do you make sure that you maintain that control throughout this growth period? Great questions. It's a few in one. Let me go to just alignment. I think that in this day and age, there is conscious capital. I think that that is one thing is the conversation we've been able to flush out. If someone is just numbers, 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 we know that they are just looking for a pure investment. The conscious side, they're not necessarily interested in community building. The question are, are they interested in the vision? No different than an employee on an interview. If I was to do an interview, we start with, here's our purpose. And if they don't light up, if they're not interested and ask us questions about that, we are misaligned day one. We'll do the same thing with potential capital partners. They either are really intrigued and they do want to know, how is this going to work financially? Because we are not a nonprofit. We certainly are, have been able to create value and our model is quite different. So essentially our capital partners for the most part are no different than others. They are looking to recycle their capital. And the TELUS portfolio was a great example. We bought it a year ago. We'll recycle the entire capital for the initial equity for that deal. will be done. Actually, First National is, is doing the financing. That'll be recycle within a 12-month period. That's a grand slam for our partners. Well, we continue to still build community. If you think about that, we had a three-year plan. Yes, the market's hot too, and that was very helpful. But our value creation is different, don't forget, because what we do, we don't go gut to the studs. We are not a value adder. We spend money on energy efficiency, curb appeal, common areas, and security. And for that, we will increase rent sometimes from 5 to 8%. And if rents are seven, $800, our customers are happy to take that increase. We'll decrease costs through building ambassador model and other things that we do, tapping into the community to decrease our operating costs. We increase NOI and boom, that allows us to refinance. And so that's been working for us thus far. So that's the economics behind it. Probably jumping around a bit there, but the partners have to be aligned with what we're doing. If not, it just doesn't work. If they're into every 
detail of the numbers versus not the details of the business. That's a red flag for us. That's okay, you know, because I believe that there's a lot of capital out there. Everyone can always find capital. The other side to that coin for us in looking for capital is there's capital and counsel. And this goes for the banks. You know, First National has been an incredible advisor to us at all levels, you know. And so I always think we can get the money anywhere, but who gives us the best counsel, not just on the equity and partnership side, but on the debt side, which I also look at as partners. And so it's capital and counsel. And I believe that counsel is actually more important than capital because you can get the capital anywhere. I know that's a bit broad, maybe not, but for the most part, you'll find the money somewhere. You mentioned strong market being helpful for the last while, and that would you know, certainly be the case on the capital side, both for debt and equity. Could you see that shifting on the equity side specifically? Could you see that shifting as market conditions change? Maybe a little more of a, we'll call it a balanced market, or maybe it's equally challenging to raise opportunities and raise capital because it's been very misaligned for the last while. You see a shift coming, or what's your thoughts on capital availability versus you know, opportunities to put it into? You know, it's funny because I'm new to this space. I feel like you guys have a better answer to that. My answer is I believe that going into this turbulent time, there are some groups that had extreme amounts of capital and liquidity. But now it's like, where do we spend it? We're nervous, but there's a lot of liquidity. I don't think there's a liquidity problem in some sections of the market or some groups that raised money and they have liquidity. And now it's, where do we put out the door? Like, let's be very cautious. Are we paused? Where are we putting out that money? So, On the side that we've seen, not the negative side, but certainly that has slowed us down is the TELUS portfolio, for instance. We sold 300 of the 1,000 units, a bit of a PE model. If it's not in our strike zone, we'll sell it off. If it required too much CapEx that we didn't see a path to affordability, if the units were below 12, it was sixes and eights, our model, our building ambassador model, the compensation doesn't quite work. If they're in a market that was rural and we didn't see a path for scale in that market, we would sell. So for those three reasons, we sold off some units. And what we're seeing now is those same groups that we've traded with who do the GPLP, give me a 50,000, 100,000, that seems to be drying up. We had some deals that were starting to fall apart. Luckily for us, at least today, our partners are still saying, hey, we think we've been ready for this. We're ready for opportunity. And so our original thesis to be partnered with well-sophisticated partners that have been through these type of cycles before and are well-capitalized, we think was the right strategy. Council, not capital. I like that concept. Let's just talk about the future now. I think we've covered your goals, your future plans, obviously. It sounds like you're kind of opportunistic. And I guess I'll put this out kind of open to you. It sounds like you've got a strategy for raising capital without getting to specifics, but I'm assuming you're looking for more partners or are in the middle of those conversations and you're looking to expand outside of Atlantic Canada. I mean, I asked that question earlier and I think Atlantic Canada being the majority of your units was just by coincidence. So where is that growth coming from? How do you achieve your BHAG in today's market and future? It's end of July, interest rates are up or down or up, and cap rates are going in a direction or two. So it's not easy. It's not as simple as it was at least two or three years ago or a year ago. Where do you go? How do you get that 10,000 units? Because that's a couple thousand units a year, really, right? Like That's a lot, Ron. Yeah, it's two a year. So we bought north of two, then sold some off, but landed on two in the last 12 months, which was great. It comes back to really what you said is where's the opportunities? And I actually believe, I think I said this earlier, there'll be more opportunities today because things were getting tight. You know, we were just like, wow, we can't make any of these economics work. And the only way that deals were working before things started to change were 
the value adders just really saying, well, we're going to have to make a bet on the top-notch rent that we can charge. We have to bet on that. And for that, we can make this work because money's so cheap. That's moving away now. I think that gives us more opportunity. In the last three weeks, we've seen more opportunities pop up in Ontario, Atlantic Canada, and cap rates are starting to move in the other direction. You know, There's a portfolio coming out that we know is going to be north of the four cap outside of Toronto. And that's a good sign for us. I think it puts us back in the ball game where I was worried. I just thought we're going to have to look at a different market altogether. We might have to pause in Canada. The other market that I like, I like Alberta and I like Edmonton in particular. We haven't found the right assets there yet, but I believe that, and I spent a little time out there looking at a portfolio maybe five months ago or something like that, and it didn't work out for us. But my thought was, okay, fine, you've got the oil boom bust. But I believe that through that, Edmonton's finally becoming sustainable and resilient through different segments of the market, you know, tech and different industries, I should say. And so I think they're going to be fine. And all of a sudden, you're going to see oil become icing on the cake when oil is doing well. And so I actually really like, there's a lot of our customers there, a lot of stick walk up. I like Edmonton. And I think we'd like to be there this year for sure. We're focused on Canadian markets, but you obviously have big growth plans down in the States. So any changes down there in the last couple of months? Any moderation of your plans in terms of trying to have a US heavy portfolio? Not really, except for to slow down and be cautious. I know that right now, the one thing that becomes obvious as we look to do deals in the US is at least previous to interest rates hiking, what we saw is the value add space in the US was commoditized. And what I mean by that is in Canada, in Halifax, Adam, if I bought a 12 unit building and you bought the 12 unit right next to me and rents were $800, including heat and hot water. You're a value adder. You would go in, spend 15 to 25,000 unit, and you'd ride the market. You could take rents to 1,400. That actually insulates us. In the US, what we've seen is the value add, they become extremely efficient with their programs on value add. So their costs are going direct to China and drop shipping stuff. And so all of a sudden, they don't even have to spend 25, they can spend 12, seven to 15,000, something like that. But they're only putting rents up from that 800 to nine and a quarter. That's a scary place for us. We have to think about that because even though we upgrade security systems and energy efficiency, we're not in the units. We'll fix a broken toilet, but we're not going into the units. And so we need to really be thoughtful about that before we just run and get caught. We have a lot more homework to do. And I'll go back to John's. You know, I feel like I still hear John Rizzo in my ear saying, the best time to do a deal is when you don't need to do a deal. Well, we don't need to do anything in the US. And so it gives us, we can be much more patient and thoughtful about what we are going to do. That's the attitude that tomorrow, a thousand unit portfolio will land in your lap and off you go. Yeah. yeah. I think we're out of time. This has been super interesting. I will say candidly that you don't fit the mold of many of our other guests. I love the backstory. I love what you're doing. I love the vision and the passion. So thanks for sharing it with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. And, you know, we're having fun. I mean, one thing I would like to say too is the other opportunity that I saw is behind the office doors. And when I looked at this space, and I don't know why this is, you guys probably have a better answer, but it's a very old industry, even in the development side. It is old, not just in the, I think there's lots of prop tech happening, but I'm just talking about the company culture. And so I just thought there's a great opportunity to create back to the Starbucks, the Southwest Airlines of this industry. I look at culture quite differently. Aaron, you had asked about our team. You know, our fifth employee was in-house counsel. 
And from Blake's Casels, I'm probably saying that wrong, from Toronto, Hugh Goodday joined us just over a year ago, done some M&A stuff in London and Toronto and came home. And I just thought, we're going to be doing so many transactions. Let's really get top talent that are aligned with what we're doing. And I believe that our job as a company is to create an environment where we bring out the best in people. And so our culture is very unique. We didn't have come to the office before pandemic. We don't have it today. There's a small office in Halifax. We have unlimited vacation, mandatory life days. Once a month, take your life day off, go hang out with your grandmother, your nephew, or paint your garage, whatever you're going to do. We provide personal training, life coaching, family vacation allowance, home cleaning services. The list goes on. And that's just the transactional stuff, but it's the environment that we're creating, the team. It's about getting the best players that you can find and then getting them playing well together to win the game of business. And so, I've been very fortunate to be obsessive about that from my last business. And you guys mentioned that the podcast, Scaling Culture Podcast, I get to learn from the best and then I execute right away. And so our team is incredible. We really have no hierarchy, very flat organization, results driven, bring out the best in people. So then we ask for the best of them while they participate in the environment at Vita. And that strategy has been working wonderfully as well. That's very cool. I think you'll see a few resumes hit your inbox after that gets broadcast publicly. Jeremy, don't kill me. These guys are very happy. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy Zarin is my boss for anybody that wants the context on that one. He's a great Uh, guy. You guys have a great culture. We've tried. That's for sure. It's one of Aaron's babies to work on. So thank him for that. Great. Aaron, I'm going to send you a book. You're going to love it. Well, I'll be out in Halifax a couple of weeks. When we hit stop on this recording, we'll coordinate. But thanks again very much for coming on, Ron. Really appreciate having you on. And looking forward to touching base again in you know, a couple of years to see how close to the BHAG you've gone. So good luck. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed the conversation. Up next, we do have the after show, so stay tuned. Thanks to First National Course for powering the podcast. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show. For an interview we just did with Ron Lovett of Vida out in Atlantic Canada. What a cool story. I touched on it. I could have spent probably the entire episode just talking about his experiences running a security company and what that looked like as a younger individual trying to learn what running a business sounds like. I mean, he just kind of glossed over losing a million dollars and almost going bankrupt, building it into something where he got 27x, which obviously I wasn't going to ask what that dollar amount is, but it was enough clearly to quickly pivot into a pretty sizable real estate portfolio. So good on yeah. We skipped over a handful of things there. Yeah, the Jay-Z bodyguard thing that you mentioned, training BJJ under the Gracies. I mean, for anybody who doesn't pay too much attention to mixed martial arts, that's pretty impressive. There's a few things there, you know, not in the wheelhouse of commercial real estate podcast, but super interesting topics. Yeah, I would have loved to have just done a, give us your top 10 stories of the first 30 years of your life. Like you heard, I guess, at the end of the podcast, I'm hopefully I'm out there in a couple of weeks. I'll get some notes. I don't know how I convey that to the masses here, but you'll get to hear the stories I pick up. <laughs> yeah. anyway. To more, I guess, more pertinent things, you know, we had to kind of dig a little bit, but the whole concept of revolutionizing affordable communities, but some really interesting things. The building ambassadors is something we've heard of before, right? Just the sort of transitioning out of the old superintendent concept. I did like the idea that, you know, you don't have a full-time super. You've got somebody that really just is part-time. They've got a full-time job or whatever, and they're just doing this kind of odds and ends. So they only really more manage a component of the building. 
rather than just being responsible for the entire thing. I thought that was interesting. So you've got more people, more hands-on, I guess, a more diversified skill set than just the individual super. And then the concept of the Vita card, we didn't really get into that, but he's blinding Vita, the business with local businesses to offer discounts and incentives to the customers, the unit holders, the tenants to use the local businesses. So, I mean, that makes perfect sense. You got a Chinese restaurant in a retail plaza down the street. You go, okay, listen, I got a hundred units. Let me offer a 5% discount to my tenants. And I've got a hundred people that'll be more willing to come to your business, your Chinese food restaurant. I've not heard that before. It's probably not a new idea, but I've not seen it or heard anybody talk about it before. And now you've got another advocate in the community. I mean, that restaurant owner, if he's talking accommodation to anybody, he's going to recommend your building to that person. It's a fantastic idea all around. Every single time somebody uses that card, they're going to think of what a benefit it is that they're in your building and not the building next door. And it wasn't just local businesses. I mean, that's the easy example, but he mentioned hub insurance. So there's an international insurance provider offering health insurance at a discount, which perhaps for Hub is just a great way for them to show that they're providing services to community or it's just a a distribution platform to make it easier for them to reach more people by partnering with an apartment owner. So some creative things that in all the interviews that you and I have done, we've covered programmatic living at length, which he got into a little bit, but that wasn't the only thing he's offering to distinguish himself from other apartment providers. And one thing that would distinguish that he covered is probably due to his background insecurity was having a focus on safety in units that have affordable rents. Because I think a lot of people living in buildings with mid or lower tier rents probably don't feel safe in a lot of buildings. You know, that's the reality of it. So if you came from a situation like that in a building where something as core as where you live, not feeling safe and the kind of mental duress that would put you under, just that shift alone would be huge in your life. They talked about the fob entry and entry control. I mean, obviously those seem simple. And it is interesting that, you know, I think it's probably something that's overlooked in a lot of cases. And he's probably absolutely dead on identifying that as something that is an easy differentiator from what some other, you know, neighboring apartments are offering. So good on him. I I found it very, very fascinating. I mean, he's clearly a character from the beginning all the way through, written multiple books. One of them he did mention called Outrageous Empowerment. So I'm assuming you can Amazon that. So there you go. Outrageous Empowerment by Ron Lovett. And then the podcast was called Scaling Scaling Culture. Scaling Culture. So look for that podcast too. It's a very interesting concept and not necessarily apartment specific, more about entrepreneurial and just driving business and differentiation, right? It really was about just finding ways to get competitive advantage. Again, also not new concept, but it was interesting because he's talking about a security business and the aha moment was, what would I have done if I started from the very beginning, started from scratch? And you can see he's kind of doing that with apartments a little bit. Yeah. I was impressed with the conversation around acting in alignment with your goals, that they were encountering, you know, million dollar offers for investment and saying, no, that is not going to feed what we need to get to our goal of 10,000 units. There's still an offer of a million dollars in equity. You can buy more property and there you go. Not everybody would have the discipline to say, no, that is not in line with our goals. You're trying to get to 10,000 units. You buy a thousand unit portfolio, you sell 300 because they're not in alignment with what you have the vision for your portfolio being. It's a discipline as well, because if you do have that goal of 10,000 units, you know, parting with 300 of them is a bit of a sore spot, but you know it's not right for the portfolio you're trying to run, you do it. And a lot of people talk about aligning their vision and their goals, but don't always act that way just because, of course, you know, human nature being what it is. 
it was uh, all around impressive conversation. I will be curious to see how you scale that culture in such a rapid way and maintain it. I'm sure if we had, well, we could talk about James Hawk, who's the president of Boardwalk, or Mark Kennedy, president of Capri. All the things that are important to Ron are important to them. But of course, over a much larger portfolio, over a much larger geography, it is difficult to maintain that culture. And I'll be really curious because Ron's coming at it from a different perspective. Obviously, the cap rates and the boardwalks of the world are major institutions, long-standing institutions, and second generations. In a lot of cases, well, in both those cases specifically, they're second generation leaders. Ron being, you know, whatever it is, five years on the job. It's fun, you know, when you and I come across these individuals to be able to look back in in a couple of years. Like, I can't wait for two years from now. Like, so how's it going? <laughs> thousand units closer. What's the story? I would say though. So, I mean, obviously, you're talking about scaling culture. You know, going from two thousand to ten thousand units, but I don't know, and I have never run a giant portfolio of apartments. Maybe I'm just completely making this up. But I would think that you know, if he was sitting on three buildings geographically close to each other, and he was trying to scale up to 500 units, then maintaining that culture and that kind of shift would be more difficult. You know, at 2,000 units, he's already got to delegate a lot of work. He's got to have trust other people to do what they're going to do. Like he's already having to broadcast that culture to a pretty wide market. So going from 2,000 units to 10,000 to the boardwalk, the cap rates, the world numbers. I think if you're capable of maintaining culture at 2,000 units, I don't know if it's that much harder to do it at 10,000 units because you're already talking about a lot of units. Maybe that he's still in the middle of figuring that out, right? Again, just the language of using customer to describe the people that live in your buildings, I think that might take some explanation when you go to a building ambassador and say, no, they are customers. Building you just acquired that's been used to the management or the owners, the previous owners, trying to explain to them that we do things differently. Like this is how we look at it. It takes some time. And clearly it can't be Ron being the one that has that conversation every time they acquire a new building. It's a 12plex that's got a building ambassador, right? He's got to have people that believe in it and can also convey the idea and the culture of revolutionizing affordable communities. Fascinating. I find the whole thing very, very fascinating. What a great interview. I really enjoyed that. I really think that's it for our thoughts. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the end. And of course, once again, thanks to First National for powering the podcast. And thanks to my co-host, Aaron. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.